What's up? Welcome back to another episode of the Elite Investing Show. This is where we talk about business, investing, and being successful in life. And today I'm going to be talking about. Okay, I'm going to be talking about anything. I'm going to be reviewing security analysis. Security security analysis is one of the greatest books by Benjamin Graham, which is basically a textbook. He considers it to be a textbook. It's still used as a textbook. Many value investing courses today. It is also used as the Bible of value investing. It is used to analyze value stocks. It is the original value investing publication, and what it contains is basically a paradise of methods to analyze every single kind of security that exists, excluding derivatives. He and he starts off with. Uh, uh, giving us what intrinsic value is and moving on to what value investing exactly is what it seeks to achieve what investing in particular seeks to achieve and then he also <clears throat> he also seeks to explain to us how to analyze various securities in today's market because today's market which is flooded with tens of thousands of kinds of different different companies and stuff like that so he starts off with that and then he moves on to talk about bonds so let me give you what he says about bonds number one it has to meet its fixed charges so safety cannot be a deficient safety cannot be accounted for or compensated for by an abnormally high yield which means you cannot buy junk bonds Junk bonds are not to be bought unless you know he's trying out risk arbitrage again. Where all he does, well, risk arbitrage is nothing but trying to make money through a restructuring. So if a company that goes that nearly goes bankrupt starts restructuring itself using Chapter Eleven, then all that, then you can buy when it's restructuring itself. Because that's a great value opportunity, and then when it goes up, you can sell it. So that's risk arbitrage. Uh, risk arbitrage. Because I don't know what's called risk arbitrage, but that's risk arbitrage. So let me get back to the topic of junk bonds. So he says you you don't buy junk bonds. You should only buy high grade, high quality bonds. He also mentions that you can buy a junior bond as long as the uh, as long as the fixed charges are covered sufficiently which means let's say people have to pay 50 dollars a year for the bond i mean a company has to pay 50 dollars a year for the bond and this is just a hypothetical obviously 50 is too small a number but 50 dollars a year for a bond let's say the company earns only 25 would you buy the bond i mean it, then it would probably be a junk bond because it doesn't have enough earnings to back it up. However, if in fact it had $250 in earnings to back it up, would you buy it? Of course you'd buy it because that's one of the greatest things that probably existed, $250. So it's one of the greatest bonds that, uh, that would exist because it pays you a grand sum, a massive sum of $50 a year. It's pretty, uh, that's one fifth of what it earns. 
So therefore it earns five times its fixed charges. So if its fixed charges are 50 and it earns $250, then you're fine, you're good because it earns enough to cover its payments. A junior issuing, so bonds have several classes. So there's like the top and then there's like the middle ones and then there's like the bottom ones. So as long as it, as long as it manages to meet fixed charges for basically all classes of bonds he says you can buy the middle and the lower class as well if you want a higher return as long as it meets its safety requirements and then he talks about preferred stock preferred stock is stock that is issued with a higher dividend yield than common stock but you can't vote with so with a regular stock, you can go up to an annual general meeting of a company and then vote for who's going to sit on the board of directors, who's not going to sit on the board of directors, and you can play a part in important company strategic decision because you're a stockholder and they're running the company for you. You're not running a company. They're running the company. You own the company. So therefore, they are liable and you can basically end Basically, a common stock gives you basically all those rights. However, a preferred stock gives as a big dividend and nothing else. It has a big dividend. I'm not, I'm not kidding because the preferred stocks of companies like Starbucks can yield somewhere around 7 to 8%. You never know depending on time and depending on the price of the preferred stock. But it can yield a lot. And when it does yield a lot, then you can make a handsome profit but the thing is a company wouldn't issue preferred stock unless it couldn't meet fixed charges because even if it doesn't pay a dividend yield it's still fine because it's a stock it's not a bond bond you have to pay interest otherwise it goes into default so it's either not too good for debt and it's not good for equity or it has not raised enough from equities and people won't buy its shares anymore so that's when it issues preferred stock I mean, that's the usual time when it issues preferred stock. And then he talks about the speculative components, that is stock warrants and convertible issues. So I'll explain what these two are. So a convertible issue is basically, a convertible issue is basically you can convert a bond into a stock. I know that sounds fancy. So let's say you have a bond that's worth $100 and you can convert that into two shares of common stock. That is your votable stock. That is the regular stock that you can buy in the stock market. Whenever you refer to the stock market and the stocks, you refer to common stocks. So getting back to the topic of convertible bonds, when you buy a convertible bond, you can have a conversion right. So if I buy a convertible bond for $100, yeah, I get interest on it. Plus, I'm able to convert that into two shares of a company at $40 each. So how does convertible bond, so how do convertible bonds work? So if you expect the stock to keep rising, then if you buy and you buy the convertible bond, what happens is that if the star, let's say you bought a convertible bond for 100 and $100 and that's it you can convert that into two shares of common stock at your $40 a share so totally it's going to be $80 a share I mean sorry you're gonna have $80 in stock if you convert it otherwise you're gonna have a hundred dollar bond so assuming that all fixed charges are covered 
because that's the other condition. What you can do is it's probably the greatest instrument that exists. So let's say the stock advances from $40 a share to $70 a share. Then you can buy two shares at $40 for $80 and you can sell them at $140 for a $60 profit. Let's suppose the shares go down from $40 to $20 a share. That's a 50% decline. What's going to happen? Nothing because you own a convertible bond. So what you can do with a convertible bond is you can still enjoy the coupon, you can enjoy a payment and you can turn it in when you have to turn it in and you don't really have to care about where the stock price is because if you're not going to convert it, you don't have to. And this has led to a lot of speculation, like not thinking kind of speculation or criticism, but speculation, speculation. People have been gambling with convertible bonds because they've expected stock prices to keep rising and stuff. And therefore, their convertible bonds keep, and they expect their convertible bonds to keep um, rising, uh, rising in value, because the two star, the two shares that can be got from one convertible bond, and their value keeps rising. You can be rewarded with a handsome profit. Again, it's totally lucky because it, because you're speculating. Another aspect is the stock warrant. So stock warrant is issued is a stock option that's issued by a company. What's the difference between a regular option and the stock warrant? The stock warrant number one is issued by the company. Stock options are issued by individual investors. The stock warrant has been the company sets aside shares for stock warrant. So let's say that I uh, the company issues a stock warrant to convert uh, to buy ten shares of the company at $50 a share. Let's say the value of the stock rises to 60 or 70. Then what are you going to do? Of course, you're going to buy those 10 shares at $50 a share, and then it rises to $70. So you have a $200 profit right there. So that's a stock warrant. The thing is, an investor can issue an option for selling a stock, then he won't, and he can basically sell that stock as well. I mean, some brokers do allow it. I wouldn't do it because you can lead, it can lead to liquidity and it can lead to a lot of problems should the other investor decide because usually what people do with options is they again gamble on them and expect the price of the option to rise and then they sell the option they keep doing that and then that leads to uh, no one exercises their options so that leads to a ton of profit potential and loss potential as well so I will so However, with a stock warrant, you generally and you will confirm get shares from the company. When you do genuinely and confirmed get shares from the company, what you're going to have is a wonderful mix of both safety as well as value. Because a stock warrant, you can convert it. And otherwise, the, what's going to happen is that the stock warrant value is going to go down. So what's the difference between a stock warrant and a convertible bond, you ask? Well, you can't issue, you can't get coupons and you can't get payments. You can't get interest payments on a stock warrant because it's not a bond. But you can get, but you will get interest payments on convertible bonds. So therefore, stock, option, stock warrants are usually cheaper than, uh, uh, than uh, convertible bonds. And... Then he moves on to the big one, common stock. And then he starts talking about dividends. So dividends, he expects a dividend growth for the past at least five to 10 years. 
I mean, if it's been growing for 20, 30 years, that's amazing. I mean, if it's been growing in recession time, that's especially what a great dividend yield is. So, when he, he looks at dividend yields and he makes sure that the company can pay enough to cover its dividend yield. For example, two years ago, I think. I mean, you know, I, I, it's a couple of years ago. AT&T paid 140% of its earnings in dividends. I wouldn't want to invest in a company like that because it doesn't have enough money set aside to buy, uh, to pay dividends. So dividends, uh, high dividends usually constitute crappy companies or unless it's a real estate investment trust, it's usually a crappy company because only crappy companies pay high, like really, really high dividend yields or it's an unusually profitable company. And then when you go and then you uh, when you look at a common stock, you're supposed to look at earnings, the balance sheet, and cash flow. So cash flow is earnings minus depreciation and amortization minus other non-cash charges such as employee compensation and issuance of stock warrants. Plus, I'm sorry, I screwed up the formula. Okay, so it's earnings plus depreciation and amortization plus non-cash charges such as employee compensation and issuance of stock warrants and stock options minus capital expenditures and minus changes in working capital. So that's basically what cash flow is. It's basically cash that is left after spending on say capital expenditures, paying your employees and it's basically cash that is left because why would anyone want to own a company if they don't get cash? So that's one thing he asks you to look at look at cash and look at cash flow sorry and he makes sure that you see from the owner's point of view because what the owner is going to try and do is he's going to try and reduce depreciation and amortization charges simply by reducing the value of one, the business, and two, he's gonna charge, uh, because he mentions, Benjamin Graham mentions, that there are two places from where you can deduct expenses. One is the surplus, one is like the bank account, basically, of the company, and one is what it gets from its operations this year. Both ways, both things, you can deduct as, deduct your capital expenses from, you can deduct depreciation and amortization from, you can deduct stuff from it. But then you have to be wary of from where it's deducted stuff. Again, he also makes you wary of being ready for tax credits and stuff like that because a tax credit can lead. For more on tax credit, go check out my episode on Amazon and the trade war, which was episode 28, if I'm not wrong. So that is why, that is what the biggest problem with analyzing a company is. You usually don't know whether it's charged to surplus or charged because companies want uh, number one want to beat short-term earnings estimates and they usually don't care about long-term growth and that's the annoying kind of company it's the useless kind of company that you don't want to have put your money in so make sure that the company deducts everything from earnings or if it does deduct it from capex uh, from surplus make sure you make your own appropriate adjustment so that you make sure that it's uh, that you get a good earnings figure before you calculate so that's something like the price to earnings or the price to book value ratio or you know the earnings over price or the profit margins and stuff like that 
another thing that you do have to notice is that depreciation and amortization is a real, real expense because people have been stressing on a bit that these days, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. When you look at a bit that, it's fundamentally incorrect. You're assuming that India interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization are not charges at all. So when you put EBITDA, and when you keep stressing on EBITDA in your annual report, then there's a good chance that there's a sign of trouble. Buffett has mentioned that EBITDA is earnings net of bad news. Because usually interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization are some kind of bad news. So EBITDA is one of the greatest, greatest, greatest problems in uh, finance and in stock investment as well. So be wary of any companies that keep stressing on a bit down a bit. For example, right now you can go up and check the shareholder, the letter to shareholders from Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank keeps mentioning a bit earnings before interest in South taxes because I don't know about EBITDA, but keeps mentioning EBIT and that makes me wary of what's going to be inside the annual report. I haven't read the annual report so far. I read the letter to shareholders because you can tell a lot, a lot about the company from simply the letter to the shareholders, from the CEO's letter to the shareholders, because you know exactly what he's saying, and then you can see if it matches up with the statistics. Declining earnings for the past six years without reason, and he puts the blame on, say, something like geopolitical risk or macroeconomic risk or some kind of fancy name, and then with the word risk added after it, that's not going to help. That's one point you've got to note. And then Benjamin Graham makes sure that it's able to pay its dividends. Getting back to the dividend topic, it's able to pay its dividends. There's some level of earnings growth. And Benjamin Graham has suggested a formula as well. So the price of a stock is equal to its earnings times in open bracket 8.5 plus 2 times its growth rate close bracket. So when you, because 8.5 is a no growth car, is the PE ratio of a no growth company. And then 2G is two times the growth, uh, two times its expected growth rate. What you expected, don't care about analysts, what you expect its growth rate. And overall, to summarize it, overall, it's an amazing book. It's a must read for every single investor. But then if you want to read it, you've got to have at least a basic understanding of accounting because it's not intended for the layman. It's mentioned at the start. You have to understand basic accounting. You have to have a basic knowledge of what terms like price to earnings ratio are. And those are really simple terms. You can get them up. You can just search basic uh, finance terms or basic investing terms basic investing terminology on the internet and you'll get all these different different names and different um, you'll get all these different uh, all the different terms that you require I've said different too many times and with that I conclude another episode of the Elite Investing Show thank you so much for listening to this episode please subscribe to this episode on if you're on Apple Podcasts or any podcast at all and if If you have an iPhone or know someone who does, do review my podcast. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time.